I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Meredith Bagby, author of The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. In 1978, NASA announced the first class of civilian astronauts, opening its ranks to candidates beyond white male fighter pilots. Among them were the first American women, African-American, Asian-American, Jewish persons, mother, LGBTQ plus people, and married couple. Now, Meredith Bagby shares the never-before-told stories of the new guys, a class of pioneers who shattered glass ceilings, overcame racial barriers, and literally changed the face of space travel. She researched oral histories, congressional hearings, investigative reports, and had exclusive access to and the cooperation of three of the first American women in space, Kathy Sullivan, Anna Fisher, and Rhea Seedon, and tells their captivating story of the race to be the first women in space. Uh, she was a senior film development executive at DreamWorks, a political reporter and producer for CNN, and a teaching fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics, and she graduated from from Harvard College and Columbia Law School. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Meredith. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, 1978, that was in 1978, NASA announced its first class of civilian astronauts. I guess my first question is, and I'm really interested, I have to say, I'd like to focus on the women. Um, that Because, I mean, that was a huge barrier to overcome for women to be able to be astronauts. So how did that come about? What was what what were the what led up to that to allowing women to actually become astronauts? Yeah, that's a I mean that's a great question. I think that there was a lot of groundwork that needed to, to be laid before those women were able to join the corps and it started um you know, with both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 which required um you know, uh folks to be fair in hiring. It also was preceded by people like Jerry Cobb and the Mercury 13, um, which was, you know, a secret program run by a fellow named Dr. Lovelace, who basically proved that women could do all the same things men could do. They could hit all the same marks that NASA required of them. Of course, Jerry Cobb and the Mercury 13 never got to fly. They got as far as testifying to Congress. And uh, at that point, uh, John Glenn, who also testified, you know, said that women's place was really in the home and not in the sky. And Jerry and the other Mercury 13 were denied that opportunity. But by 1978, things had shifted enough that NASA was forced then by Congress to integrate the astronaut corps and to um, recruit both women and people of color uh, to the program. So let's take specifically, I'd like to talk about Sally Ride. Um, she was the first American woman in space. Where, how, how did she get there? What did she do? Where, you know, what, <laughs> how was she able to break this barrier? Yeah, as an individual, before she actually became an astronaut, there was a lot of things that came before yeah. that, yeah, in terms of her successes. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, she was a valley girl uh, from uh, California, and she was very bright and interested in physics and science. She also happened to be a phenomenal tennis player, and that, I think, played in a lot, that physicality that she had played in a lot to her desire and then her ultimate success as an astronaut. And when she was getting her um, 
PhD at Stanford, she read an article in uh, the newspaper at Stanford that NASA was recruiting, and I think she thought this could be the next big challenge for her. So she applied, and she got in. Um, she was a top candidate because of uh, not only her her intelligence, but also her ability to run on a treadmill and do push-ups and pull-ups and, and all of that sort of thing. And then you know, when she got into the program, she really excelled. Um, in part because of her abilities that she had learned as a young child on the tennis court. So what did her, I mean, she, what, as I understand it, well, she went to Stanford. She was a physics major. I mean, she, mm-hmm. so uh, obviously um, her intellect plays a big part in this. So what was the pushback? I mean, there must have been, even when she was accepted, uh, uh, I mean, you talk about John Glenn, you know, women belong in the in the kitchen or wherever the uh, in the home, not on the <laughs> in space. I even hate, I'm stuttering over. It. I don't even want to say it. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> it's a paraphrase, but it's a pretty close paraphrase of um, yeah. of what he said. No, but I think it was um, you know the the pushback. I think look, a lot of the work had been done prior to 1978 by other women, and they had knocked down a lot of those barriers. So by the time um, our first six women get to NASA, things are much easier than they would have been otherwise. That said, there was still a, a cultural divide between. So in the class, there were the, the pilots of old, the, the military guys who had never worked with women. And then there were, and they, a lot of them were Vietnam vets. And then there were these new civilian astronauts that were scientists. And a lot of them had protested Vietnam. And so there was this big cultural divide between the two. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of um, teasing and disbelief among the pilots that women could hack it. But what's great about this class is that not one of them flunked out, not one of them failed, all of them flew. And it was a, it ended up being a huge success and really proving that women and people of color and civilians could do this just as well as the military guys. It sounds like they had to do it even better, which is, I guess is nothing new. They had to be outstanding. <laughs> None of them dropped out, I'm sure, in other people did or other men did drop out, but they didn't or they couldn't. I mean, there must have been an enormous, obviously, amount of pressure for them to stay in the program and to do what they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely true. And it's it's interesting. Sally Ride talks about on her first flight in 1983, when she became the first American woman to space, that it wasn't just her flying, but it was all the hopes and dreams of all the little girls out there. And it was her six, it was also her five um, colleagues, her five female colleagues in that class that she couldn't screw up. And there was just so much pressure uh, on her. And she worked, you know, endlessly to make sure that she did everything perfectly, which she did. I want to make a connection uh, because, and I think you're the person to ask, but now how does that fit in today with young women who say want to be in the program uh, and they don't have the right to choose uh, in in terms of their own bodies, whether to have be pregnant mm. or terminate a pregnancy. I mean, that has to impact, let's just talk about it, women who want to be in this kind of a program. And, you know, in terms of attitude, in terms of practicality, you know, we've I, gone back 200 years or, or more. So it has to mm-hmm. have some, yeah. It is, it is really wild where women's rights are today. In some ways, we've gone so far forward. In some ways, we've gone so far backward. And um, I'm sure it's maddening to a young woman um, who's coming of age now and looking for work and, and, and starting her life. I can imagine that it's very frustrating. And um, I will say of NASA that they have been a, um, you know, they had a troubled past for sure with women, but they've had a 
very um, a very bright present. Um, I think the Artemis program, which is going to return us to the moon, has promised that they will put a woman and a person of color on the moon, and they have lots of candidates to do so. They've done a good job at recruiting and getting women in, in the program. So I think even though we have a far way to go, I, sh- I should also mention that, you know, part of getting women into the astronauts is getting women into STEM programs. And even though, you know, if you look at the numbers of, of who's in STEM, women and, and men are roughly equal in STEM, but a lot of those uh, the STEM jobs are actually in the nursing, uh, you know, in nursing, which are not uh, the jobs that prepare you to be an astronaut. And so I think we've still got a far way to go to get women into STEM programs and to get people of color into STEM programs so they can achieve in these in these jobs, like, like being an astronaut. You know, as a social worker, and I, I just, I guess I want to stay on this topic for a little bit because uh, the real practicality of, let's say you are in this program, you are in training, you've gone through, you know, you're, you're, you're ready to go to space and then you do get pregnant, then it's over for you. Mm. I mean, that's, that's, it's, that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I, um, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a great <laughs> question. I think it's something that I don't know it, you know, with, with, with regard to the new guys, they, um, it was the first time NASA had to deal with women getting pregnant. And at that time there was no, um, family leave. Uh, there was no protocol for those things. And, um, a couple of my astronauts talked to me about their pregnancies and choosing, you know, whether or not to have a family, they were able to decide when they were going to have a family. And even then those decisions were really tough. And I remember Anna Fisher, who was the, ended up being the first mom in space, you know, when she got her flight assignment, she was pregnant and George Abbey, who is the head of the flight, um, who, was, who was doing crew selection, called both her and her husband, who happened to also be an astronaut, in and asked them whether or not, you know, Anna would want to be able to go. And Anna, I think, felt to herself, why is my husband getting called in on this decision, too? It's my decision. It's my body. And she just stepped up and she said, you know, I'm going. And um, and and she spent a good amount of her training while she was pregnant. And um, anyway, but I think it's, it's interesting things haven't, you know, in some ways things have changed a lot. In some ways they're, they're just the same as they were many years ago. So women still feel, you know, face a lot of the same choices between family and career. So, yeah. Um, all right. Let's, so let's take, okay. That when we were talking about Sally Rye, now Ju- Judy Resnick, for instance, she's the first Jewish American in space. So she had, you know, mm-hmm. Jewish and a woman. <laughs> um, and mm-hmm. that, that was the very, a very first, um, and she died in the Challenger disaster. Um, mm-hmm. so can we talk about her, where she came from and how she got there? And then a, yeah. Tragic ending. Judy yeah. is a, I really loved learning about Judy. And of course, as you mentioned, she died in Challenger. And so a lot of the stories, all the stories I got were from her friends and family. And um, she was really a beloved astronaut with a great sense of humor. She was an engineer out of Akron, Ohio. Um, and um, she was like Sally was in the running to be first woman. She was a whiz on something called the robotic arm, which was what they used to deploy satellites. And um she, of course, received a lot of um, misogynistic comments. Uh, a lot of people, she was very pretty, and um, a lot of people like to talk about her hot pants and her big hair that floated around in, uh, <laughs> without, in zero, uh, zero G. They um, talked about whether she wore makeup or not. Um, and um, famously in the book, one of the stories is 
there was a uh, an IMAX camera on the shuttle on her first flight, and her hair got caught in the IMAX camera, and they had to cut her hair out of the IMAX camera. She was literally locked inside of it, and the hair kind of flew around the cabin and so forth. And she told everybody, she goes, if you tell, I'm going to cut your heart out with a spoon, because she knew that the press would have a heyday, you know, commenting on her female femaleness, commenting on her hair. And so she kept that story out of the press for a very long time. But those are the kinds of things that women faced is like lots of comments about how they looked rather than their performance. So, I, I mean, I'm just always fascinated by these women in the sense that, you know, obviously they're scientists, they're accomplished, they're bright, they're more than, you know, super intelligent. But at the same time, they're as as a social worker, their whole emotional makeup has to be really, um, they have to really be on top of things and they have to be very secure in terms of who they are and what they want and how they're going to accomplish it. Um, I think this, the mo- probably the most, maybe for other groups too as well, but particularly with women because they're, they always have, nobody has your back, it doesn't seem, or does anybody have your back? Let's say you're in the program and you mm-hmm. are a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's interesting. I think what I, what I loved about this group and the way I, I saw NASA operate around this group was that once the women were in, they were, everybody was protective. It seemed that everyone, people were protective of the group in general, and they did end up, even though they started out as people with a lot of differences, I think they found their way, and they did have their back. I love that when, you know, um, Sally Ride was uh, preparing for her first uh, American woman flight, that um, Bob Crippen, who was her commander, you know, sat next to her during all the press conferences, and anytime somebody would challenge whether she was qualified, you know, Crippen would say, you know, she's here because she's qualified, not because she's a woman. And we're not going to treat her any differently. He was protective of her. And um, I think all the men kind of rallied, or most of the men, I won't say all of them, but like most of them rallied around and treated the women like teammates at the end of the day. So once you're in the club, you're in the club. Yeah. It's getting there is a formidable uh, task. Uh, But once you're there, then you are part of the group and everyone does have everyone else's back, male or female, or that's what I hear you mm-hmm. saying. Now, one of the other ones who uh, you don't hear this name as often is obviously Sally Ride and Judy Resnick, but Shannon Lucid. Um, mm, yes. Okay. Talk to us about her. Yeah, Shannon is uh, just a delightful person. She is, um, you know, she came to the program as a mom. She was the only one that did. Um, she had already had three kids and she was from a slightly different generation, a bit older than Sally Ride and Judy were. And the women's movement had really left her behind in a way. I mean, it hadn't come in time for her to a certain extent. And what I mean by that was she was a chemist out of in Oklahoma and she had a, just a horrible time um, getting a job. She, um, her, her husband basically said, you know, you need to go out back and get your PhD to even get in the door, which she did. And um, even when she did, you know, her bosses would say things to her like, you wouldn't think of getting pregnant, would you, on this, <laughs> this job? And she would be like, absolutely not. But she would, she would be pregnant, and she would just wear big clothes. And um, when she – I remember she told me a story about um, when she gave birth, she left on a Friday, had the baby over the weekend, came back on a Monday, and pretended like nothing happened. 
And, you know, those were the kinds of things she had to do to maintain her career. And so, um, you know, when she got to NASA, she was thrilled because for the first time people were treating her like an equal and giving her the same opportunities that the guys had. And, um, she ended up, um, you know, she wasn't one of the first ones to fly of the women. She was actually number six. But that said, she, uh, when she did fly, she, she ended up staying with the program for a very long time. And she um, was part of the, cooper- the initial cooperation with the Russians when we began to cooperate with the Russians to ultimately build the International Space Station. And she flew on Mir, which is the Russian space station, of course, and she broke, like, every record <laughs> in terms of number of days that she stayed there. And she didn't speak Russian, but she was there with Yuri and Yuri who only spoke Russian. And, um, and she did incredible science uh, on Mir, but most importantly, she did this incredible long duration stay and she did it after she was 50, which was incredible. Uh, uh, these stories are, uh, they're, uh, they're amazing. They're, they're great stories for all of these women that we've been talking about, but, what would you say, you know, given the history of these women and what they've done, how do you think, what do you think, the, I assume that your book is going to have an impact on the young women today of the uh, younger generation. What kind of an impact do you want it to have on them? What's the story you want them to, what's the takeaway from your book for this younger generation of women who might be considering uh, joining, uh, becoming astronauts? Um, you know, I hope that the book is inspirational to young women who want to be in the in the program, want to join NASA. Um, I also wanted to show the human side of what it's like to be an astronaut and, um, you know, what it's like to try to balance that with family um, and um, and quality of life. I also, you know, one of the one of the things we talk about in the book um, is that four of the class members were lost on the Challenger. And the class had to, you know, mourn the lot, their loss and also help to fix the program and fix some of the problems with NASA. And so I think we also wanted to shed a light on how difficult it is to get to space and how it's, um, you know, it's a long process and there's some wins and there's some losses, but that people, that these, these, these heroes and these women ended up coming back from this terrible loss and were able to, um, to create a really uh, successful and um, historic program in the shuttle. Well, you're you're a teacher, as I said, I think at the beginning in the intro, at uh, a teaching fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. What's the response of some of the of or the response of some of these women to to the book? Um, I think people are excited to read it. I think they are astounded at some of the things that some of these women had to go through to get where they are, especially those early stories of what it was like to be a scientist when there weren't that many female scientists and. Um, the stories like Shannon Lucid, where she had to lie about being pregnant even to get her foot in the door. And I think um, young women um, are also grateful that women, you know, like the new guys did this, um, it, you know, for them and that they helped pave a way. And I think, you know, we can't take for granted sort of the rights we have uh, and uh, the opportunities we have. And we have to make sure kind of the next generation also has them. Well, STEM, are women, uh, are there just as many women involved in the STEM programs as young men? I, I don't know. I know it's difficult. I was just thinking in terms of, I know in engineering, it's still difficult to get women mm-hmm. uh, in engineering programs, even though they have that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. If you look on the face, women are represented in STEM, but the proportion is highly weighted towards um, nursing and um 
that's fine and good, but it doesn't, uh, the hard sciences are what get you to NASA and to becoming an astronaut. And so in terms of just those, those sciences, you know, um, you know, like physics and engineering, they are, and, and, uh, and uh, medicine, they are underrepresented. And we do need to do a better job at getting women into those programs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And how do you, when you say do, get a better job, what do we need to do to do that? What is the better mm-hmm. job? How do you, yeah, how do you actually do that? I think it starts so early. And um, I think it starts, you know, in grade school, quite honestly, and early education. And also, there's still this idea that women, are, there's still like a, 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 you know, a bias that girls aren't good at math and it, it persists with us and it's kind of terrible. But I do think that we, we unconsciously still weight things towards men in the sciences and in math. And the only way to get people prepared for those, um, those careers is to start early and make sure that, that girls love math in the same way and that we're treating them similarly. If you keep telling girls they're not good at math, they won't be good at math. I mean, that's, that's exactly. the outcome, right? Exactly. And I, I guess and we still do that. So we have to change the curriculum, not by the time they get to college or get to Harvard, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, before then, when, they're, when mm-hmm. they're very young, starting in elementary school, I guess, or even starting before then in preschool. Uh, mm-hmm. so, that's yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. So what, how have you, you know, uh, now I just want to get your response. You, you wrote the book, um, it was a, how long did it take you to write this book? I hate to tell you, it's, I, it's, I started this process in 2017. So a long time. And, and then, you know, like two years of, 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 you know, pretty exclusively writing the book. But I, I, I looked back at my first interview was 2017. So. So was it good for you in COVID and writing the book? A lot of the writers and the authors that I talked to, they say COVID was great for me in the sense of as a writer, mm-hmm. because I had a lot of private time and, I didn't wasn't expected yeah. to do anything else, and I could just sit and write. I don't know if that was your experience. It absolutely was my experience. It was it just cleared off my schedule entirely, and um, I was able to find all this time to do almost nothing else, write <laughs> 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 and take care of my kids. So um, yeah, it was good. It was good for me. Now I have to find the same solace <laughs> somewhere <laughs> else. Yeah, and tell me where are you going to find that? That's the next maybe my last question because we only have a couple minutes left, but. Yeah. What's oh, next? yeah. I mean, the writing process is, is hard. And I think everybody is a writer kind of understands that you have to kind of put everything away, put the do not disturb uh, button on your on your computer and um, kind of go heads down for, you know, hours. And then that that's just about put, placing boundaries around that time and treating it as it's a, as it's a sacred time <laughs> to get your writing done every day. Otherwise, you're lost to yeah. the whims of the day. And I assume your kids respect those boundaries. You mentioned kids. I don't know how many you have, but, uh, they have to, yeah. I mean, you have to, I guess, yeah, train. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly. Yes. Luckily, most of them are in school at this point. So, uh, so I get those hours back. Great. It's been great talking to you today. Uh, the new guys, uh, I love uh, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. You got to read the book. We talked specifically about the women today, but there's so much more in the book. So, uh, Meredith, Give us a website, websites, Instagram, where can we go for more information about you and about the book? Oh, yeah, great. So the website is just my name, which is MeredithBagby.com, and I'm at MeredithBagby, M-E-R-B-A-G-B-Y, on Instagram and Facebook and all those 
uh, social media outlets and the books available on, you know, Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore. And I really appreciate uh, anybody picking up a copy and please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from, you know, people about what you thought. And I really thank you, Catherine, for the, for the time here today. It was great. great. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Meredith Bagby, thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 